بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد فان احسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وان شر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار in the last lesson that we had we looked at the statement or the line of poetry uh, in which the author Sheikh Islam Ibn Taymiyyah in what is ascribed to him he said wa aqulu qala Allah jalla jalaluhu wal mustafa al hadi wa la atawwalu the rough translation of which is that i say Allah the mighty and majestic said and what al mustafa meaning the chosen one the messenger al hadi the guide what he said wala atawwalu and i do not make ta'wil so this statement here is basically essentially stating the manhaj the methodology of the people of the sunnah when it comes to speaking about allah his names and his attributes so that methodology is that we when we speak about allah we say allah said about himself and the messenger said about his lord in describing him and we do not make ta'wil ta'wil is not from our methodology and so in the previous lesson we we looked at this uh, line of poetry and we established a number of things uh, we mentioned the reason why this ta'wil or looking at the metaphorical meaning the figurative meaning for words why did this arise why did this come about there's some history behind it there are reasons behind it and we also looked at the name al mustafa for the messenger of allah what this means some proofs and evidences from the quran and sunnah for this and likewise the name al hadi al hadi the messenger being the guide and then we looked at ta'wil what is the meaning of ta'wil and what are the correct types of ta'wil mentioned in the quran and the sunnah the two types of ta'wil the first one is the same as the meaning of tafsir the word ta'wil it means tafsir meaning explanation the second meaning of ta'wil is the outcome of something the occurrence of something allah uses ta'wil for the dream of yusuf alayhi salam in other words the outcome of the dream of yusuf alayhi salam likewise ta'wil for the coming of the day of judgment right so the, the outcome or the occurrence the actual occurrence of the day of judgment so ta'wil means the actual occurrence or reality of a thing taking uh, place So this we looked at in the previous uh, lesson and the key thing to take from this line of poetry is that we as ahlu sunnati wal jamaa we have a clear distinct methodology when we speak about Allah his names and his attributes we only say about Allah what he said about himself and we only say about Allah what his messenger said about him and any muslim when you say this to any muslim this this appeals to him this appeals to his fitra it appeals to his aql it makes sense there isn't anything or any fault that can be found with this methodology that we ascribe to allah we say about allah what he said about himself because he is most knowledgeable of himself 
And likewise what the messenger described him with, because the messenger is the most knowledgeable of the creation about his, his Lord. And conversely, we negate from Allah what he negated from himself and whatever his messenger negated from him. So when we come across verses or a hadith which mention attributes for Allah, we have no problem with these attributes. We believe in them, we affirm them, and we deny any likeness between Allah and his creation with respect to those attributes. So his hearing is unlike our hearing, his seeing is unlike our seeing, his knowledge is unlike our knowledge, his love is unlike our love, but we affirm the meaning of these attributes. So this is our way, and as for the way of ta'wil, of looking for metaphorical, allegorical meanings, we said that this was a bid'ah, an innovation in the second century of Islam, and the reason why it was innovated was because certain individuals or groups or sects like the Jahmiya and the Mu'tazila, they were affected by uh, philosophical concepts and ideas from outside of Islam, from the Greeks, and they saw that there was a clash between those ideas that they were using to prove Allah exists and between what is found in the Qur'an of Allah's attributes. So then they began to uh, claim that these attributes are allegorical, they're not real. And so Ta'wil really was born in that period in the second century after Hijrah. And then some of the heads of innovation like Bishr al-Marisi, they are the ones who basically invented, they systematically went through the Qur'an and began to invent false Ta'wils. And they spread them in the Ummah. And then in the third and fourth centuries, in the fourth centuries, the Ash'aris and Maturidis, they took these Ta'wils and put them in their books. And this is why today when you when you look at these people, the Ash'aris and Maturidis, they're the ones who will bring you all of these Ta'wils. Ta'wil of Istiwa means Istawla. Ta'wil of Yad means Ni'mah. You know, interpret, interpreting these attributes upon a way that the Sahaba never did and the Tabi'een never did. So this was our previous lesson today. We move on to the next line of poetry. And this is the statement of the author. وَجَمِيعُ آيَاتِ الصِّفَاتِ أُمِرُّهَا حَقًّا كَمَا نَقَلَ الْأَوَّلُ Which means that all of the verses of the attributes, I pass them on. Meaning I transmit them and pass them on. حَقًّا In truth, just as the very first group, the very first generation, meaning the Sahaba, just like they transmitted the likes of these uh, uh, verses. So what we'll do first, we'll go through the brief explanation of Sheikh Salih al-Suhaimi, and then we'll move to some others. And so the Sheikh says, first of all, what is intended by this line of poetry is what is found in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of names and attributes, that a person, he passes them on, he transmits them and conveys these verses, just as they came upon the intent of Allah. This is the key thing now. Allah muradillah. Because these verses came with an intent. When Allah mentions these verses, when He mentions, for example, that He has knowledge, that He has hearing, that He has seeing, uh, that He has seeing basar and sam'ah, and that He has love, muhabba, and he has hikmah and rahmah or mercy, then clearly these verses are mentioned with an intent. There is a murad. There is an intent behind these verses. And so when we say that we convey and transmit these verses, we pass them on, then we pass them on upon the intent of Allah. There is clearly an intent behind 
these verses. So we convey them with the intent of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we do this without disputing and delving and making ta'wils. This word means this, and this word means that, and this word means this. And without asking how, how is Allah's mercy, how is Allah's knowledge, how is Allah's love, or without resembling them with the creation. Saying Allah's love is like our love. We, we do it without falling into any of these affairs. And our methodology in this regard is the famous verse in Surah Al-Shura, the 42nd uh, Surah, verse number 11, in which Allah says, لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ وَهُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْبَصِيرُ That there is none which is a likeness unto him. And he is all-hearing and all-seeing. So we affirm names for Allah, we affirm the attributes they represent. And at the same time, we deny any form of likeness between the realities of Allah's attributes and the realities of our attributes. So then the Shaykh says, regarding the second half of the poetry, كَمَا نَقَلَ الْأَوَّلُ Just as the very first generation, how they conveyed them. He says, meaning here, as-salafu salih, meaning the righteous salaf. Because he says, it is known, لِأَنَّهُ مِنَ الْمَعْلُومِ أَنَّ كُلَّ خَيْرٍ فِي إِتِّبَاءِ مَنْ سَلَفْ That all goodness, this is a general rule, all goodness lies in following those he, who came before us. Meaning here primarily, the sahaba and the tabi'een and the tabi'een. All goodness lies in following them. This is because in the Qur'an, and likewise in the Sunnah, we see clear evidences which obligate a Muslim to follow the way of the Sahaba. There are clear verses. This is not the place to go into all of those verses. But there are clear evidences, maybe five or six verses, which explicitly establish the obligation upon every Muslim to refer back to the fahm, the understanding of the Sahaba. And this is a topic in itself. And then we see that in the, in, the, in the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah, he spoke highly of and praised the first three generations of Muslims, the Sahaba, those who followed them, and those who followed them. And he tied all of the virtues and the excellences down to these three generations. And so from that we understand that there is a religious obligation to understand one's religion upon the way and understanding of the Salaf. Upon the way of the Sahaba, the Tabi'een, and the Tabi' Tabi'een. And as a side point, you will come to understand why so many people, and so many groups, and so many sects, and so many parties, they have a, an intense hatred, and a dislike, and a resentment that people should ascribe to the way of the Salaf. There are persons that say, that I am a follower of the Salaf, or that I am a Salaf. The reason for this is because that a person who takes his religion, who understands, who takes the fahm of his religion from the Salaf, then he is attaching himself to a large body and a large group of people, a large group of Muslims, from the most excellent of all of the Muslims, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, the Tabi'een, and those who came after them. And so therefore he, in his understanding of the deen, the people whom he is taking it from, it is unlikely that he's going to make mistakes. Because that jama'ah, that whole group of the sahaba, tabi'een, 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 
then the messenger has said, uh, we, we see narrations that collectively they will not unite upon misguidance. So when a person makes that description and he says that I am a follower of the righteous Salaf, then this means when we look at the reality of each and every other faction and group, we see that their understanding, their faham, their understanding of the religion is taken from one man. It's taken from one man, the founder of their sect or their group. Whether it be the Jahmiyyah, or the Mu'tazila, or the, 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 the Qadariyyah, or the Murjiyah. We see one man or two men, or three men. In the case of the, the Qadariyyah, we have Wasil bin Atta, Amr bin Ubaid. In the case of the Jahmiyyah, Jahm bin Safwan, uh, Jad bin Dirham. In the case of the Mu'tazila, we have certain figureheads. In the case of the Ash'aris, we have certain figureheads. In the case of the Maturidis, we have one man. And we can keep going through each, every single generation up until we come to our time and we see all of the, all of the political groups and political parties. We have Ikhwan al-Muslimin, Hassan al-Banna, Sayyid Qutb. We have uh, the, the Jama'ah Jama of Maududi in Pakistan. We have the Hizb al-Tahrir and Nabahani. And we can pick out founders of each and every one of these groups. And so when we say that we ascribe to the Salaf and we take our understanding from the Salaf, this is a threat to all of these people because they know in their souls, they understand and they know that their creed or their methodology or whatever program it is that they're trying to call the Muslims to, it is the result of the fikr, the thought of a man and his books. Whether it be the books of Sayyid Qutb, or the books of Hassan al-Banna, or the books of Maududi, or the books of Nabahani, or the books of any individual you can think of in whatever place that, you know, that, that, that we might, might be discussing. So, this is why Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, he mentions in, in, in one of his works, that it is from the shi'ar, from the, uh, from the slogans of the, of the people of truth, that they make intisab, that they ascribe themselves to the, the, the Salaf, meaning the Sahaba, the Tabi'een, and the Tabi'een. So this is an issue that we should point out here. And that's why you see many people casting doubt about ascribing to the, to the Salaf. You know, it's Hizbiyyah, it's splitting, it's separation. And all of these doubts, our scholars have replied to them and refuted them, whether it be Sheikh Al-Albani, Sheikh Ibn Baz, Sheikh Salih Al-Fawzan. There are refutations against the likes of these doubts which a person can refer to. So the point being here is that every goodness, kullu khayrin, fi ittiba'i man salaf. All goodness lies in making ittiba'i, in following those who came before us, meaning the righteous generations of the, of the first three generations. And we see that when we go back to this topic, the topic of Allah's names and attributes, and in fact in any topic, whether it be al-qadr or al-iman, we see that these generations who have been praised in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, that they laid down principles and foundations which were in agreement with what is in the book and the Sunnah. So when the deviations appeared and the sects emerged, those who were mentioned as being worthy of follow, the Sahaba, the Tabi, the Jabin, in response to these innovations, they laid down principles. They laid down qawaid and usul. And these usul, these foundations, were in agreement with the book and the sunnah. They derived them from the book and the sunnah. And then by way of these usul, they clarified the truth from the falsehood. So for that reason, when we go back 
to these imams of the, of, of, of the second century and the third century, like Imam al-Zuhri, Imam al-Awza'i, Sufyan ibn Yayna, Imam Malik, and so on and so forth. We, in their, we see in their works, in their books, that they lay down these usul, these principles, these qawaid, and then we go back to them, and from them we derive methodologies, and we learn from them, and from that we understand the truth between falsehood in this topic, of Allah's names and attributes, but also in other topics as well. In the issue of Al-Qadr, in the issue of Al-Iman, in the issue of belief in the unseen, and so on and so forth. So the Shaykh here, he mentions an ayah, one of those ayahs in the Qur'an, which is actually a proof of the obligation of following the Sahaba. And this is one of many. So this ayah is in Surah At-Tawbah, it's very easy to remember, it's Surah 9, verse 100. Surah 9, verse 100. Allah says, وَالسَّابِقُونَ الْأَوَّلُونَ مِنَ الْمُحَاجِرِينَ وَالْأَنْسَارِ وَالَّذِينَ اتَّبَعُوهُمْ بِإِحْسَانٍ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُمْ وَرَضُوا عَنْهُ Allah says, وَالسَّابِقُونَ الْأَوَّلُونَ Those who are the foremost in accepting faith. مِنَ الْمُحَاجِرِينَ وَالْأَنْسَارِ So he mentioned two groups. المُحَاجِرِينَ and the Ansar al-Muhajirin, the first Muslims who emigrated from Mecca to Medina, and the Ansar who received them in Medina and who aided and supported them. So Allah mentions them two first. And then he says, وَالَّذِينَ اتَّبَعُوهُمْ بِإِحْسَانٍ And whoever followed them upon Ihsan. Allah says, it is, the, it is those رَضِيَ اللَّهُ أَنْهُمْ وَرَضُوا عَنْهُ So Allah's pleasure is upon three groups of people. The Muhajirin, we can't be from the Muhajirin. The Ansar, we can't be from the Ansar. So there's only left one more group. Okay, so if we eliminate the Muhajirin and the Ansar, if we put them to one side, what do we have left? We have the rest of the Ummah. This is the rest of the Ummah. From the rest of that Ummah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He, he qualified who His pleasure is upon. And so He said, وَالَّذِينَ اتَّبَعُوهُمْ بِإِحْسَانٍ those who make ittiba of them. He said muhajireen and the ansar. And he said bi ihsanin. And ihsan, this is explained by the scholars to mean whoever follows them with precision. And upon goodness and virtue and upon precision. So this is the first ayah, which is a proof of the obligation of following the companions. Another proof in the Quran is the saying of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ حَضَ اللَّهُ this is in Surah Al-An'am, Surah 6, verse 90. Allah says, Those are the ones whom Allah has guided. And this can only be in reference to the Prophet and the, the, the companions. Right? Those are the ones whom Allah has guided. This clearly can only be referring to those upon whom the Quran was revealed. The Messenger and the companions Anhum. Then straight after this, Allah says, فَبِهُدَاهُ مُقْتَدِهِ So by their, by their guidance, guide yourself. Right? By their guidance. So he said, فَبِهُدَاهُمْ هُمْ Referring to a plural. This can only be the messenger and his companions. So by their guidance, guide yourself. This is a second clear explicit proof of the obligation of following the Sahaba in one's fahm, in one's understanding of the religion, and in one's application of the religion. The third ayah, famous ayah in Surah An-Nisa, Surah 4, verse 115. And this is very clear and explicit. In this ayah, Allah says, وَمَن يُشَاقِكِ الرَّسُولَ مِن بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُ الْهُدَى وَيَتَّبِعْ غَيْرَ سَبِيلِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ 
nuwallihi ma tawalla wa nuslihi jahannam wa sa'at masira allah says whoever contends and disputes with the messenger even after guidance has been made clear and plain to him and then he chooses a way or he follows other than the way and the path of the believers we shall leave him in the path he has chosen and burn him burn him in hellfire what an evil refuge so there are a number of things in this verse we see that allah says whoever contends with the messenger after guidance has been clearly conveyed to him and then he added that he chooses a path other than the path of the believers why was this necessary to put in this verse why allah could have just said whoever disputes and con- contends with the messenger after guidance has been clearly conveyed to him we shall leave him in the path he's chosen and burn him in hellfire what an evil refuge why didn't allah suffice just with mentioning that why is there inserted in between wa yattabi ghayra sabil almu'minin and he chooses a path other than the path of the believers right so the scholars like imam al-shafi'i rahimahullah and many others they derive from this verse the obligation the fact that allah mentioned this and put this in the ayah that it it is an obligation to to follow the consensus of the sahaba and to follow the, the sahaba and to follow their understanding of the of the religion so these are just three of the many proofs there are many other proofs in the quran to show the obligation of following the sahaba and hudayfa bin al-yaman radiyallahu anhu he said alaykum bil atiq alaykum bil atiq upon you is to follow that which is ancient now remember hudayfa bin al-yaman radiyallahu anhu is the sahabi who 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 acquired the knowledge of the fitan the tribulations he of all of the companions had the most knowledge of the fitan the tribulations because he would ask the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi about these kind of issues so he had the knowledge of the fitan the tribulations and so he is the one who is saying alaykum bil atiq upon you is to follow that which is ancient meaning follow that which the first people were upon before the tribulations came before the trials came before the 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 second sons of earth came and likewise ibn mas'ud radiyallahu anhu he said man kana mutaassiyan falyata'assi bi ashabi an-nabi sallallahu alayhi wasallam that whoever wishes to follow someone whoever wishes to guide and fo- follow someone guide himself and follow someone then let him guide himself by the companions of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam so after establishing all of this and we established the beginning that kullu khairin fi ittiba'i man salaf all goodness lies in following those who have passed then we return back and we see what was their madhhab what was the madhhab the way of these three generations regarding the names and the attributes and how did they behave with these texts what did what did they do with these texts when they came across a text they would pass the text on and convey it exactly as it was they wouldn't start saying it means this and it means that and it it's reality is this reality is that and this doesn't make sense no they they can't pass it on and they conveyed it with its meaning with the meaning because every text came with a meaning so this occurred in the 2nd century in the 3rd century and this was the way of the majority of the ummah in that period the jahmiyyah the mu'tazila were a minority 
and they were uh, they were they were they were defeated and refuted by the imams of the sunnah but then after this time in the 4th 5th 6th centuries we see that this ta'wil the ta'wil that we are speaking of that this was spread amongst the ummah by the likes of the ash'aris and maturidis and that's what we see present in our time today so we see from the imams of that time like imam malik and imam al-awza'i and likewise makhul and likewise Al-Layth, Al-Layth bin Sa'ad. All of these are famous Imams from the second century after Hijrah, in the second century. They all had a famous statement. They said, Amiruha, Amiruha kama ja'at bila kayf. This statement here became the way of the people of truth in the second century. In the second century. This is important to understand because in the second century, who were the people who were present whom the Salaf were refuting? They were the Jahmiya and the Mu'tazila. They were those people who were saying, Allah has no attributes. Allah has no mercy or love or hearing or seeing. And then they were going to the verses of the Qur'an and the Ahadith and they were interpreting those verses to explain the meanings away. Allah's mercy means such. Allah's love means such and such. Allah's istiwa means such and such. They were making all of these interpretations and these ta'wilat. So in this period when all of this was taking place, the imams of the salaf, like we mentioned, imam, uh, from them Imam Malik, and Imam al-Awza'i, and Makhul, and likewise Al-Layth bin Sa'ad, who was the teacher of Imam Shafi'i, many of the imams, they, had this, this, they made this statement. They said, Amir ruha kama ja'at, bila kayf. They said, pass them on as they have come, without asking how, without asking how. So when we put these two together, we understand that the Salaf were refuting these people because they were inventing meanings. They were inventing new meanings for these verses. So they were saying, when Allah says, Ar-Rahmanu ala al-Arshi istawa, Allah ascended above the throne. The Jahmiyyah was saying, and the Mu'tazila was saying, Istiwa means istawla. It means Allah conquered the throne. Why? Because they were denying that there is a Lord who is above His creation. So they changed the meaning of istiwa, which means to rise over. They changed it to to conquer. So when the Salaf, when they saw this, these people doing this and making new meanings and new interpretations and giving new tafsirs and new ta'wils, this is what they meant. This is what they were saying. They were saying, Amir Ruha, pass these texts on. Exactly as they have come, meaning with the meanings with, with which they have come, without asking how, bila cave. This is crucial to understand, this, this point that I'm making here, because you will see that those Jahmiyyah who came afterwards in the 4th, 5th, 6th centuries, they go back and they take these statements of these Imams, and this statement in particular, Amir Ruha Kamajat, come, and then they try to use it and twist it to make it appear as if these scholars were upon their madhab of tafweed. Right? Which is to say, these words and these verses in the Quran, we don't know what they mean. There is no meaning. They're just letters which have been combined together, and we don't know what the meaning is. This approach is known as tafweed, tafweed, meaning to deny that anyone has knowledge of any meaning. And only Allah knows the meaning. This was the approach of the later people who came in the 5th, 6th and 7th centuries. So what they do is when they go back to history 
and they see in the second century the imams of the Salaf making these like these statements, they misappropriate these statements, and then they use them as an evidence for their approach, which is tafweed, to say we don't know anything of what these verses mean. Only Allah knows what they mean. And this is what the Salaf meant. The Salaf said, Amir ruha kama ja'at. Pass them on as they have come. Don't delve into the meaning. Right? So they are wrongly using those statements of the second century to justify their own madhab. Right? We need to understand that this is false. And this is batil. Why? We know this because just by history we know this is false. By historical fact. By historical fact we know that those groups who were present whom the Salaf were refuting were the Jahmiyyah and the Mu'tazila. That's who they were making these statements against in that time. Why were they making these statements? Because the Jahmiyyah and the Mu'tazila were coming along and saying, Istiwa means such and such. Yad means such and such. Rahma means such and such. Right? They were, they were explaining away all of these attributes with metaphorical meanings, with figurative meanings. So they were bringing new tafsirs. That's why the Salaf made this remark. They said, Pass them on as they have come. Meaning, don't start inventing a new meaning. Don't give a new tafsir. Don't start asking how. Just pass them on exactly as it's come without asking how. And then there are in fact other statements that are, which are similar to this. Like for example, the Salaf would say, Bila tafsir. Pass them on without making any tafsir. What do they mean? They mean, don't bring any tafsir from yourself other than the one that's clear and apparent in the Quran. Right? Pass it on intact. Don't play with it. Likewise, sometimes they would say, Bila uh, kayf, as we've seen. Sometimes they would say, Bila had. Bila had. Pass them on, Bila had. Bila had, had meaning without definition. Don't bring a definition from yourself that's other than the definition that's apparent in the verse itself. So all of these remarks, we see there are many remarks like this, Bila tafsir, Bila kayf, Bila had. Okay? All of them have the same meaning. Basically, Pass the text on exactly as it has come. Don't delve into it. Don't bring a meaning other than what is what is what, what is already apparent and clear. Don't bring any tafsir. Don't bring any definition. Pass it on intact and convey it in this manner. This is what we need to understand. And then uh, the Sheikh simply gives examples of a couple of attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from them just by way of illustration. He says in the Quran. وَيَبْقَى وَجْهُ رَبِّكَ ذُو الْجِلَالِ وَالْإِكْرَامِ And the face of your Lord, full of majesty and honor, will remain. So he says, when we apply our principle, we say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a face which befits His majesty. We understand what is the meaning of face, but as for the reality of that face, how it is, then we do not know. This is something that is in the knowledge of the unseen. We simply cannot know that. We are obliged to have iman in it. And to ask questions about it is a innovation, is a, is a bid'ah, is an innovation. And so we apply this principle uniformly across all of the other attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is one of the two examples the shaykh gives. And that's pretty much the essence of what the shaykh said. Uh, we can move on to some other commentary. And so here we begin by... Uh, in, in, in the line of poetry, وَجَمِعُ آيَاتِ الصِّفَاتِ أُمِرُّهَا حَقًّا كَمَا نَقَلَ الطِّرَازُ الْأَوَّلُ That all of the verses of the attributes I, I pass them on. In truth, just as the very first generation, how they conveyed and they transmitted them. So first of all, when we speak of 
the sifat, the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then of course, all of this speech returns back to the kitab and the sunnah. Our speech about Allah returns back to the kitab and the sunnah. Right, this is our foundation. Our origin point is not reason or aql. Right? Because historically speaking, a split occurred in the ummah in the second century where some people came along and they made the aql to be the foundation about speech regarding Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alhamdulillah. Right? So this was the point at which there began to be apparently a conflict between reason and revelation. Right? To us as people of the sunnah, is there a conflict between reason and revelation? Can the revelation contra- contradict aql and can aql contradict revelation? The answer is no. We are speaking of sound reason. Aql which hasn't been corrupted. Sound reason, sound aql, sound intellect will never ever contradict an authentic text. This is a principle in the religion. And Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, he actually authored a whole book, a book of 10 volumes, in which he was refuting those people who claim that there's a conflict between reason and revelation. Those people who are denying the attributes of Allah. So this book, Dar Ta'arud Al-Aql wa Naql, repelling the apparent contradiction or clash between Aql and Naql. Aql meaning reason, and uh, Naql meaning the revealed text. Right. So we, we believe that when a person's reason is sound, sound reason hasn't been corrupted, and when we have an authentic text, those two can never ever clash or be in contradiction. Okay. So when we approach the subject of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we say that we turn to the book and the sunnah for whatever Allah has said about himself or the messenger said about himself. And when we accept that, we find no problem in our reason, no clash in our reason, no contradiction in our reason in affirming anything that we see in the book of Allah or the sunnah of the messenger of Allah sallallahu Because we have this principle, sound reason never contradicts contradicts an authentic text. But as we said, in the second century after Hijra, meaning from 100 Hijra onwards, as we said, the Jahmiyyah and the Mu'tazila, they came along and they were affected by other nations, Jews, Christians, Sabaeans, Greeks, Greek philosophers, Hindu philosophers, the Sumaniya, other people. And they came with the result or the idea, we don't need to go into all the details, we've done that before. But the conclusion of it was, is that they saw that reason, when reason thinks about Allah and how Allah should be, then it clashes with what is in the Qur'an. Okay, so for that reason, because the reason comes first, that's what they saw, the reason has to come first, then we have to now somehow approach the Qur'an in a way to make it conform to our reason. And that's why they began to make ta'wil of the verses of the attributes. This verse doesn't mean this, it means this. That verse doesn't mean this, it means that. Right? So they systematically went through the Qur'an, they went through all the verses in the Qur'an, and started writing figurative meanings. It means this, and it means this, and it means that, and it means that, and it means that. And they began to corrupt the language of the Arabs. So the Mu'tazila began to write books in in which they began to introduce some of their false principles of, you know, metaphorical and whatever else. And so the point that we're making here is that when we speak of the sifat 
and the ayat, the verses of the attributes, then we it's upon our understanding that we return back to the kitab and the sunnah, and we see no conflict between reason and revelation. There's perfect harmony between reason and revelation. When you see these people coming to you, the Ash'aris, the Maturidis, today they'll come to you, you see them disturbed in their minds, and you see them having problems with you know, certain attributes, that's because they believe. They believe. They, they might not say it, but they believe there's a conflict between reason and revelation. They, a lot of these people, they don't understand the usul of what their doctrines are built upon, because they're ignorant people who follow their scholars. And they won't really recognize and, and realize these things. But when you point it out to them and you say, and you say, look, do you believe there's a conflict between reason and revelation? They'll, they'll, they'll become confused because they, it's, you know, they, they, they don't know that their doctrines are built upon these false principles. So, so the point we are making then is that as people of the sunnah, we see perfect agreement between reason and revelation. And that's why Ibn Taymiyyah, as I mentioned, he wrote that book, 10 volumes, in which he's refuting the Jahmiyyah, Mu'tazila, Ash'ariyyah, and other than them, who operate upon this uh, false principle. Then we have, what is the definition of Sifa? Sifat is the plural of Sifa. What is the definition of Sifa? The definition of Sifa is Al-Ma'na Al-Qa'imu Billahi Ta'ala A meaning the word sifa, attribute, refers to a meaning, ma'na, which is established with Allah. Which is established with Allah. And which he gave to himself, meaning he described himself with that attribute. Or which his messenger described himself with. And which in turn indicates al-kamal al-mutlaq. Al-Kamal Al-Mutlaq. It indicates perfect, you know, complete, absolute perfection. And it purifies Allah, it removes Allah from every fault and deficiency without having any partners. This is the definition of Sifa in the Shari'i sense, not in the linguistic sense. We are speaking in the Sharia sense. So when we say what is a Sifa of Allah, as we understand it in the Sharia, this is its definition. I'll repeat it once more. The definition is Al Ma'na Al Qa'imu Billahi Ta'ala, a meaning which is established with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from what Allah has labeled himself with. You know, meaning an attribute, a meaning which he's given to himself, and which the messenger has given to him, Ali Wasalam. From what indicates absolute complete perfection. Now, to give an example, Al Ilm. Allah has described himself with knowledge, with ilm. He has given himself the attribute of ilm. And this ilm is absolute complete perfection. And likewise with mercy and hearing and seeing and so on and so forth. And the Arabic. The Arabic. Yeah. Uh, sallallahu وَتَنْزِيهِهِ عَنْ كُلِّ عَيْبٍ وَنَقْسٍ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهِ So I'll give you it after the lesson, you can copy it inshallah. So this is the, is the definition of the, of the sifa, a meaning established with Allah, the Most High, from that which He gave to Himself as an attribute, or His Messenger gave to Him as an attribute, 
from what indicates absolute complete perfection, al-kamal, al-mutlaq, and which also frees and purifies him from every fault and from every deficiency. And he has no partners. He has no partners therein. Okay, so with that introduction, we now move on to numerous masail. There are numerous other issues that relate to the issue of Allah's attributes. And so we'll mention them, see what we can get through by the, by in the time that we have. So the first of them is that Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah, that when we speak of attributes in general, when we speak of attributes in general, then attributes are of three types. When we speak of attributes, and we speak of attributes ascribed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or Allah is freed from certain attributes. Attributes are of three types. The first a- a set of attributes are those which are sifatu kamalin. Sifatu kamalin. Attributes of pure perfection. La naqsun fiha. There is no deficiency in them whatsoever. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is described with these attributes. Right? So for example, knowledge, when we say ilm, ilm is an attribute which has nothing but pure perfection. It's praiseworthy in every sense. Right? This is ilm. Allah has the attribute of ilm. And so all of the attributes are, are like this, which we affirm for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The second type of attribute is an attribute which, 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 which comprises deficiency. It is pure deficiency. Naqs. It's an attribute of naqs. And so these types of attributes are denied for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. By way of example, uh, tiredness, to be tired, is deficiency. It's pure deficiency. As it relates to Allah, it's pure deficiency. Likewise, dhulm, dhulm, oppression. Can oppression ever be considered in any way to be perfection? Of course not. It is deficiency in every sense of the word. So Allah is free from all of these attributes which have nothing but which are nothing but pure deficiency. So these are the first two. And the third one is there are those attributes which if you leave them on their own, then they are really deficiency when, when you speak of them on their own. And when you speak of them in a restricted sense, then they are perfection. Right? The best way to explain is by way of examples. So the first example is, for example, the issue of al-makar. Al-makar is to plot and to plan. Right? So as an attribute, when we just leave it generally, for someone to have the attribute of makar, to be plotting, planning, conniving, whatever, this is a naqs. This is a deficiency. However, when this attribute is manifested in response to someone else, right? So someone is plotting and planning and devising. And then in turn, we see Allah plots and plans. Then here, this attribute becomes an attribute of perfection, right? So depending on how it is, how it is found and how it is applied. So there are some attributes which are like this. Another example we can give is the example of al-istihza. Al-istihza, which means mockery. Mockery. We see Allah in the Quran, when the hypocrites, they try to mock Allah and the believers and the messenger, Allah says, Allahu yastahzi'u bihim. Allah is the one who mocks them. And this is a sign of perfection. Likewise with, with mockery, it's a sign of perfection. 
right? It shows that Allah is not incapable. Allah is not, you know, powerless. Allah, Allah plots against them as they plot against Allah and His Messenger and the believers, right? So this is a third category of attributes. So all attributes when we speak with respect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, either it is pure perfection, which we affirm for Allah, or it is pure deficiency, which we negate from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and or it is something which when left uh, unrestricted, it is deficiency, and when qualified, it is perfection. And uh, a point that we should make here is that sometimes there are certain attributes that as it relates to humans, they are perfection. So for example, for us to sleep, to have sleep is something which for insan, for mankind, is actually something that's, that's a, a something that's beneficial and per, like a form of perfection for him. But for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is, it is not. It is a deficiency for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this, that's the first issue. The second issue that we move on to, the second point that we make as it relates to the sifat of Allah, is that the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are eternal. Allah is eternal with His attributes. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never acquired any new attribute that He never had before. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when He created the creation, He did not acquire the name Al-Khaliq. He did not acquire the name, or he did, he did not acquire the attribute of khalq. Rather, he was al-khaliq in eternity. He always had this name. He always had that attribute. Right? So Allah is eternal with his attributes. He is eternal, his essence is eternal, his attributes are likewise eternal. And there's a quotation here from Al-Maqrizi in Al-Khitat. Al-Maqrizi is a, a scholar who wrote the history of Egypt and he says that whoever looks and, and, and investigates in the books of hadith, in the prophetic hadith, and he looks at the athar, the, 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 the narrations, al-athar as-salafiyya, the narrations which come from the, from the salaf, he will know that there has never ever ever been reported from any authentic chain not even any deficient chain for that matter, from any of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, in all their various levels and their abundant number, that they ever asked the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam about the meaning of anything which he described his Lord with. And none of them ever differentiated between an attribute should be an attribute of the essence, sifatu dhatin, or it should be sifa to fi'lin, meaning that it, it, they never distinguish between an attribute of the essence of Allah, like for example Allah's knowledge, Allah's life, Allah's hand, Allah's face, and the likes of these affairs, or whether it is a sifa to fi'lin, it is an action, an action of Allah tied to His to His will. Rather, they affirmed for Him sifatun azaliyah, they affirmed they, they affirmed eternal attributes for Him. On this issue, the eternity of the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there are a number of different opinions and views, and I will mention just three of them. The first of them is the view of Ahlu Sunnati wal Jama'ah, which I've just explained to you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is eternal with His attributes. All of His attributes, hearing, seeing, life, knowledge, will, and so on and so forth, Allah has been eternal with these attributes. 
That's one view, which is the view of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. There is another view, which is from the people of Kalam, and they are the Karramiyyah. Karramiyyah. They are a group who emerged in the third century after Hijrah, in the time of Imam Ahmad and around that time. They believed and they said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He acquired attributes He never had before. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was not one who had irada. Then He had irada. Allah was not one who created. Then He acquired the attribute of creating. Right? So in other words here, He acquires attributes He never had before. And this is batil, this is false. This is a false doctrine. And then we have a third school, a third school of doctrine, which is the, 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 the Ash'aris and Maturidis and those who follow their way. And what they say is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had attributes in eternity, but those attributes were never ever implemented. Right? Allah never created anything in eternity. Allah never spoke anything in eternity. Allah never showed any mercy in eternity. Allah never... So, so what they are saying is Allah had attributes, but those attributes were never ever ever manifested up until He created this creation. Right? So Allah had attributes, but those attributes were never affected or you know, uh, basically implemented. Right? And again, this is a, a third school of doctrine. And the reason why they say this is quite deep and it goes back to this issue of a proof they were using to prove Allah's existence. But again, we should know that what we believe as people of the, of the sunnah is that we believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is eternal with his attributes and he has never ceased to be one who speaks when he wills, for example. We affirm that Allah speaks. We affirm that Allah acts. And we believe that in eternity Allah has always been one who can speak and act if and when He wills. Which means that we say Allah has never been devoid of speech or action. Because Allah speaks as and when He wills. And this is a position which is established in the Quran and established in the Sunnah. And we see that in the Quran, Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu, there are many verses in the Quran which go like this. Allah says, وَكَانَ اللَّهُ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلِيمًا حَكِيمًا وَكَانَ اللَّهُ There are many verses. I'll, I'll give you some of them. وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلِيمًا حَكِيمًا One example. Another example. وَكَانَ اللَّهُ غَفُورًا رَحِيمًا So Allah mentions many names which are, which are in the same wording. وَاسِئًا حَكِيمًا غَنِيًا حَمِيدًا سَمِيعًا بَسِيرًا Shakiran Alima, and so on and so forth. This word, Wakanallahu, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Timi mentions that this is a proof in the Quran, and he cites Ibn Abbas in this regard, that the, that the meaning of this ayat means that Allah was eternally, ever was Allah, Aliman Hakima, ever was Allah, Afuwan Ghafura, meaning that in eternity was Allah, one who is knowing and wise, who is forgiving and merciful, pardoning and forgiving, you know, Hamid and praiseworthy, Sami and Basira, seeing, hearing, Aziz and Hakima. Okay. And we see in other verses, Wakanallahu, Allah kulli shayin qadira, bikulli shayin alima, ala kulli shayin raqiba. So all of these verses in the Quran they indicate that meaning that Allah is eternal with his attributes, 
And because some of these attributes are muta'addi, muta'addi means that they, like for example, when Allah says that He is ghafoor uh, rahima He's one who forgives, He's one who is merciful, it means that His attributes of mercy and forgiveness were, were, were in effect and implemented, right? So this is a proof to show that our position, position of Ahl-Santi wal-Jama'ah is correct. We believe Allah was eternal with His attributes, and that he was never devoid of these attributes, and that he was never, these attributes were not, you know, not implemented if you, if you understand what, 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 what we are saying here. So with that, we will conclude uh, today's lesson, and inshallah, we'll take this issue up in more detail in the next lesson. So uh, we are still on this line of poetry, inshallah, we'll take maybe a few lessons to conclude. And so with that, we conclude our lesson there. Just one or two announcements, inshallah, before we uh, enter into the salah. The first of them is an announcement uh, or basically a request. As you can see around you, there's building taking place. And in a week or so, we're due to knock that wall through, inshallah, for the expansion of the masjid. Of course, all of this requires uh, funding. And uh, this is an appeal to uh, you, inshallah, if you would kindly support the project the best you can. As you know, there are great rewards in the sunnah for a person who aids in the building of a mosque and a building in which Allah is remembered and Allah is worshipped and in which he, his signs are mentioned. And so at, the, at this stage of the expansion, we have roughly an outstanding amount of about £35,000. And so this is an appeal for you to support the project. There's not only the masjid area, but also we have a school and also a uh, a nursery for the for the uh, you know uh, young children so all of this inshallah there is great deal of uh, reward uh, we also have a sisters entrance created on the side where the sisters can have a separate uh, worship area here likewise a school there's funding needed for heating and plasters and many many other things which are outstanding so inshallah ta'ala if you can try to support this project as much as you can go to your families go to your friends go to your relatives and ask them because these types of opportunities uh, come and they go. And if you miss these opportunities, you've missed a great deal of reward with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So please try to contribute if you can. There's a bucket outside where you can approach any of the people. You can set up direct debits. Any which way you can, inshallah ta'ala. And please try to, try to contribute. May Allah reward you. So break for the salah. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.